Welcome to De-Stress Your Business, the podcast where we show you how to get incredible results in your business without constant stress. I'm Alexis Kingsbury, a serial entrepreneur and founder at Air Manual, and this is a very special episode of the De-Stress Your Business podcast. Today, we have a remarkable guest whose story is etched deep in business history. Gerald Ratner took over his family's jewelry business, turning it into a, a retail empire with thousands of stores and billions in sales. However, one momentous event forever changed his life and career. In this episode, we'll delve into that, in, into the impact of that pivotal moment, uh, and also Gerald's journey of resilience, learning and transformation, and how he emerged stronger than ever. We'll also explore his insights on scaling a business, cash management, and his tips on what not to do to avoid financial pitfalls. So get ready for an episode packed with inspiration, wisdom, and lessons from Gerald Ratner's extraordinary business journey. Let's dive in. Gerald, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate you joining me. Thanks for asking me, Alexis. I do appreciate it. Cool. Well, I mentioned that you've got one of the most famous stories of business history. Um, can you start by taking us through that journey from, from your own perspective of, of building the successful Ratners Group? Yeah, I mean, it was a family business and I left school at 15 and worked in the behind the counter and all aspects of the business for years. And um, it was doing quite well for a while. But then my father became ill. And um, he started not being, he was a brilliant man, but then he, he completely changed. He had a brain tumour, totally changed his personality. And this very kind, caring, bright person, he just became very, very bad-tempered. And, um, and then we went into loss. We were losing money. It was clear to me that, sadly, um, he, you know, he couldn't carry on in that way. So... I managed to take over the business by persuading him, which was difficult because he started up that I should take over. And as soon as I took over, I could clearly see that um, we were going down the wrong path. It was all about prestige and chandeliers and expensive products, um, high profit margins, all that sort of stuff. And that was not really tuning into the demographics, which at the time in the 80s were... 16 to 24s were spending a lot of money, you know, buying stuff on impulse. And the jewellers, all of them really, um, were not catering for that. There was a threshold barrier. The youngsters were terrified of going to a jewellers because they felt that they were going to get stung for hundreds of pounds. So we changed all that um, and started putting in lower priced products and more fashionable earrings and chains rather than diamond rings and swatches and all all sort of colourful stuff and posters and discounts and music playing, everything that the, the other jewellers hated. Uh, but it was incredibly yeah. successful. And um, we started going into profit again. And uh, it also enabled us to acquire a lot of our competitors. And uh, one of the big ones, of mm -hmm. course, was H. Samuel, who also owned Watch the Switzerland at the time. So it was a a great acquisition for us because HM were three times our size, but in the eighties you could do things like that. And when we bought H Samuel and put our way of doing things into their shops, which had a much better name, bigger shops, better locations, um, it really took off. And uh, we started, we went from a 34,000 loss in 84 um, 
to about an 80 million pound profit in uh, 87. Wow. And then we went on to make 125 million. And in fact, uh, the day before the, um, the speech, uh, we were going for 200 million profit and uh, we were defying the, the recession. We were one of the few uh, retailers to succeed in America with a thousand shops. Albeit we didn't transform our formula, we, we use local management, um, which is a mistake that a lot of people do. They try and export the formula. However successful, it won't work in America. Uh, but we, right. we cracked the American market. We were really on the crest of a wave when, unfortunately, I made a joke um, which was misreported. To us. I'm not blaming anybody. It was a dumb thing to say. I made a joke about a sherry decanter. Uh, which I was never keen on that one product out of 5,000. In fact, in the speech, yeah. I talked about the quality of our products, but I said that one line, um, made a joke about it and a prawn sandwich compared that to earrings. And, and of course, the I gave the ammunition to the press who said that I said it about all my jewellery. And to this day, people seem to think I said it about all my products, but it was it was one item out of 5,000. But there you go. There's no point in I've learned that there's no point in uh, being in denial and pretending that it wasn't you and I didn't do it and I'm not guilty. I was and I, I, I've taken the blame and I paid a very high price for it. Agreed. Yeah. And I think that um, when we've spoken previously and, uh, you know, I, I know that from your perspective, it, it was designed as a joke. Right. And in fact, it was a it was a joke that. Um, under different circumstances went down well and that at the at the time that you were due to give the speech you spoke to your uh, sort of speech coach and they said you know you haven't really got any jokes in this and we should include some and so you put those in and um, again they wouldn't get filtered out uh, wouldn't got filtered out by the speech coach like um, it was designed as a joke and I think when um, when I was kind of doing the research and thinking about before before we met I was thinking about what was the what was the issue and it reminded me of something that uh, uh, a friend told me um, uh, fairly recently, which was every joke has got a victim. There's always someone or something that's the butt of the joke, um, you know, and, and uh, most of the time that's that's fine. Um, generally, the best butt of the joke is yourself because uh, you're less likely to cause offense and it creates more more trust and so on. And uh, essentially, you've become the master of jokes at your own expense. Um, but the I guess the problem was that the butt of those jokes was in some ways the product, in some ways those customers that were buying them. And so um, how did you feel about the business at that point? Like for you, was it just a joke, but actually you believed in all the other products and you felt they were good quality and all those sorts of things? Or did you feel like, well, no, and they are low cost for a reason, but that's the market. Like where where were you at with your thinking in terms of, to the speech which is on youtube the whole 25 minutes of it is on youtube yeah. so you can check up what i'm saying i yeah. actually said that the other products we sell of the highest quality but we have one line which we inherited when we bought h samuel um and i was never keen on gifts we were jewelers why were mm. we selling gifts and you know it's like a somebody who produces uh a hundred songs an artist and they turn and i've heard them say it many times i didn't like that one particular song but the, you know the press are totally disingenuous because of the fact that we were in a recession in 1991 everyone was suffering 
And uh, if you read the story in The Sun and the Mirror, it's totally inaccurate. You know, mm. it says that I like making fun of my customers, that I said that all my jewellery is crap. Um, and it, it's, it, but, you know, I should not have used... I had used that joke before and it was fine, but I should not have used it at the Albert Hall in front of 6,000 people when the press were there. And that's another yeah. thing that they said, that I said it behind my customer's back um, in a private function. Well, there was nothing private about it. It was televised. It was at the Albert Hall and I'd given the press a copy of the speech in advance, which you have to do. So the idea that I was making fun of my customers behind their back again and anybody who knows me, I don't, I'm not this arrogant snob that the press want me to be. Um, but so often, you know, the, the, the character that is portrayed in the press is not the one that you meet. And uh, I think it was yeah, uh, Bob Dylan, who was when reading something about himself, said, I'm glad that person that they're talking about is not me. <laughs> so you know it's not me but there you go it was no point in me moaning mm. about it um i made a mistake um and um i've made the most of it you know i mean i wouldn't be talking to you now if it wasn't for that and i wouldn't be doing my after dinner speeches and i wouldn't probably be doing the mentoring and i've got a different life i'm not running a large public company with twenty-seven thousand people which Sounds wonderful, but there's a lot of pressure on things like that, you know, which mm. I've learned now through my cycling and the lifestyle that I have, that uh, it's important to have a balance. And when you're running a big company and everybody's expecting you to perform like a performing seal, um, <laughs> it's not exactly the, the best uh, relaxing, stress-free life that you can have. And things do tend mm. to suffer. And you do see this when people are under pressure. Agreed. And and when the uh, that fateful speech happened, um, what immediately for those particularly for those that aren't aware, but um, I, kn I know from seeing you speak um, that there are a number of things that then happened as a result of that speech uh, that, uh, uh, yeah, some of you weren't expecting. Right. So so what happened af after the after the speech? Well, there was no social media, um, but it still got around pretty quickly in fact i was uh i had to go to america uh about a week mm. afterwards and one of the analysts uh who arrived there uh from a stockbroken company said that you know the the taxi driver on the way to the airport was talking about nothing but this uh that they loved this story because it's to them it's rich somebody's rich bringing yeah. him down who was making fun of people who got his come up and so it ticked all the boxes for the tabloids um the sun and the mirror had massive circulations at the time which they don't have now um and everybody was talking about it everybody was making jokes about it even prince charles was in the audience when somebody was saying i'm to acting what gerald ratner is to jewelry or something like that and prince charles was laughing his head off and ever and ken dodd and Every single comedian had mm. that in his repertoire. Uh, it was a huge uh, story, uh, which everybody loved except for me. Yeah. And my staff, of course, more importantly, mm. who lost their jobs like I did. But I mean, yeah. again, 
again that they talk about the company going bust. Um, the last time I looked at it, it had a market cap of about 12 billion. So, uh, you know, again, everything, it right. everything on social media that when they talk about it is inaccurate. I don't mind them talking about it on social media. I don't mind them criticizing me on social media. I don't mind them saying, well, he did a Ratner or somebody is, I'm poster boy for failure. I don't mind any of that. But what I don't like is the fact that it's all inaccurate. Mm. Yeah, you you want to at least if if it's if it's going to come at you, you want to at least accurate. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Then then it could hit you in full force, and it's fine. <laughs> yeah, then then you feel well. Yeah, I've made that mistake. I'll own up to it, but I'm not going to own up to things that I didn't do. No, indeed, no, indeed. And and as you say, the business didn't uh, didn't uh, collapse and disappear. Um, it did lose half a billion in in value um uh very quickly and as you say that you you ended up uh losing the the role of ceo um and and moving on what happened then for you like um uh, in because for most of us um we have our you know in our own bit for other business owners like myself there are various challenges that we have when it comes to cash flow when it comes to managing problems in the business um and it's hard to then appreciate quite how um, difficult things can happen at scale. Because I think the point you made earlier is really valid, which is that it's easy to look at being the CEO of business with 27, 23,000 people, like over 20,000 people, um, that was worth more than 50% of the UK jewelry market. Like most people would look at that and go, that's success. That's fantastic. That's what we should all aspire to. And yet one of the things that we can take from your story is how, um, the playing at that level can have big benefits, but also massive risks and, and, and massive downside when it swings the other way. Right. Like, um, you know, back, back when you took over the business and it was losing 38,000 pounds a year, that's painful and expensive. Um, but then when it's half a billion in the other way, it's a, it's, it's a different picture. So what did that, what did that feel like? How did that play out for you personally? Because for some people, I think it I think one of the things that I really take from your message is actually one that's quite heartening, which is that things can go really, really bad, and yet you can still walk out from it. You can still build out from it. You can achieve amazing things even when you've been knocked to the ground. So how did how did you cope in that in that time, which must have been incredibly difficult? Yeah, I didn't cope very well at all. In fact, I um you say I bounced back, but I didn't actually bounce back. I came back after a good seven years of being in the wilderness, um, as you heard in my speech, lying in bed watching Countdown, um, being basically given up. I'd given up. Uh, it was only my wife who threatened to throw me out unless I got a job. And I was unemployable. I couldn't get a job. Here was the person who built the world's largest jewellery business from a small loss-making business in, in a seven-year period. And... I was unemployable because of that one joke. And the press kept saying I was unemployable and they kept writing articles about how how awful I was. And uh, examples of people, anyone who screwed up, would <laughs> they'd write more about me than they'd write about the person who'd screwed up that day. Um, and it was relentless. So... Um, I took it very badly. And I also, 
you know, you can be unpopular with the press, which I was, but it's actually worse mm. to be unpopular with your bank manager. <laughs> I was um, because I had a million pound tax bill. The shares are already collapsed from four pounds 20 to two P. They were worth nothing, but I still had a tax bill on the shares uh, based on some share options that I had that I'd converted at a oh, right. at a higher price. So you you get the tax bill even though the share price collapsed up, we're worthless afterwards uh, on capital gains. So I was I was, and another thing is that they said I went bankrupt, which I never did. I paid all my debts, and that's very important in the jewelry business because you can never deal in diamonds unless you've uh, if you've been bankrupt. So it was impossible to get, you know, but I had all that. Um, but, yeah, I was lying in bed doing nothing for a long time. And it was actually what I do today and every day that uh, saved me in a way, which was the cycling. Cycle 25 miles a day on a road bike. I mentioned a road bike. It's very important because a mountain bike is useless. You won't once you've gone, you know, you, you can't do that every day because it's so slow and a road bike, you can really, even I at my age can go ridiculously fast and overtake people. And uh, it's a very light carbon bike. And that was what, you know, cause I was on antidepressants and everything. And that's what mm-hmm. made me get rid of those and start thinking clearly, which made me think I could see the benefits of exercise. And that's how I eventually went into the um, health and fitness industry. Yeah, absolutely. Because you then uh, you then bought a building and um, wanted to turn it into a gym. Is that right? Yeah, I found a book warehouse and uh, didn't have any money, but um, nevertheless put it into solicitors' hands, which you can do. That doesn't cost anything, even though I had no way of uh, exchanging on the deal because of nobody the money. Uh, but I started selling membership in the club, even though I hadn't bought it. And on the basis that I got 850 people to sign up with their direct debits, I then managed to get the funding because they knew it was going to be a a success before it started. So I got the funding for that and sold it two and a half years later for four million pounds. So even though I knew nothing about uh, about the gyms and stuff of that that industry, um, I learned very quickly, you know. You can, you can. I, I travelled the country visiting gyms and pretending to mm. wanting to join, and uh, you learn quite a lot from that with the show rounds and stuff. Um, so, which basically was basically to to keep to to get the staff to smile at customers and to keep the place clean. Nice. One of the things that strikes me is that when you did that, you it's almost like you came from a position of strength because almost because you didn't have much to lose at that point, right? You know, you, you were able to, as you say, sell 850 direct debits and go to the bank, you know, sort of half buy the property with money that you didn't have, then go to the bank and get them to do it, which I guess that's the sort of activity that would have been really hard to do if you'd been part of a PLC um, uh, with, with massive oversight. Um, and And... And and it strikes me that your approach there, you know, is highly entrepreneurial. It, it feels almost a, a massive shame that uh, that that. Well, yeah, you could look at it both ways. Like, uh, if anything, for um, services to entrepreneurship, 
uh, it was probably better that you came out of Ratner's group and got the opportunity to do some other things and and learn some of those lessons. But you know, you've you've had that incredible career. Like you've you've had some of the biggest and well-known uh, business experiences. That like when you look back, what are the big lessons that you take away from that experience, and that and you know some of which you then share with people via your uh, uh, your speaking. Well, after listening to your speech, which I really enjoyed, and that's why I've asked you to, to speak oh, for you. Gerald at my mentoring sessions uh, with my club, uh, Gerald Ratner Friends, so I plugged that. Um, and thanks very much for doing it. Uh, I was very interested. Yeah, no worries. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. <laughs> oh, thanks. I was very interested in this um, AI. Did I get that right? AI. Yep. That, which is... Um, so I went on this chat thing, which you told me to do and thing. But the lessons that I learned to answer your question is to not take a lot of notice of that because it tells you the conventional wisdom, all the things that you should be doing uh, when you start up a business. But actually, when I started up that health club business, I did all the things that would never be. Nobody would ever say to you, start selling memberships before you bought the place. Um, so often to be successful in business um, you throw out all that conventional wisdom out the window and do exactly the opposite. Um, I've always done that. I mean, when I uh, wanted to acquire a shop in a particular town, I would phone up the competition and pretend I was their head office to find out what their takings were to see whether that town's any good or not. Now that isn't something you'd get in, in a chat box thing. Um, so, yeah, I did all that because I, I thought I'd download it, this chat box, because I do every week I've got to come up with a new thing to talk about with my mentoring. And somebody wanted to talk about morale and retaining staff, which is a big problem these days. So I did that and it was all very good and it was all very nice, but it was it was just what everybody does. And, and, mm. and one thing I've learned is you don't do what everybody does. Nice. Because there isn't enough money. If everybody's doing the same thing, there isn't enough money to go around for everybody. Somebody's got to be got to be winners and losers, unfortunately, in everything. So um, if you do the same as everybody else, you'll get the same results. You know, when we used to sell watches at the same price as everybody else, we got the same results as everybody else. Lousy. It was only when we started cutting the prices and doing it differently from everybody else that we were successful. So that, the one thing I've learned is is listen to what everybody says and then go out and do exactly the opposite. Love that. Yeah, the the old uh, zig if everyone else is zagging. Uh, and uh, yeah, uh, I, I do I do really like that as a uh, as a lesson because I, I, I but I think that's often hard for people, right? Like um, as you say, because it's conventional wisdom and then you have to go against it but then that itself carries risk because there are there are some things that are done in a particular way because it's a better way like there are parts of you know there are there's advice that you might give um people around business which that some the you know the reason that that advice exists is because it's been proven that that's the right answer and therefore there is risk in following a different course but obviously reward as well how do you approach it is that are there anything that you do because I, I love the fact that you think differently you also think bigger right when you're talking about you know buying a property that you can't afford getting a loan and you know selling 850 like these are big things for most entrepreneurs to to look at um and an approach and yet you know 
your 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 thinking is so expanded in terms of how you do it how do you how how have you would you suggest that people develop that level of thinking that ability to to challenge the right way of doing things well i just think that um i hate this expression of thinking outside the box but i mean if when uber started and somebody said you want to start a taxi service and the first thing they would say to you is buy a load of taxis and hire a load of drivers they haven't bought any taxis or they haven't hired any drivers and the same goes for airbnb they say they don't own any hotels same goes for facebook uh, the biggest publishers in the world don't employ any journalists or publish anything they've got us to do it so these are the disruptors um and you know i was a disruptor before it was a thing uh, in the jewelry business i changed the whole way that jewelry was sold in the uk and that's how we got 50 percent of the jewelry market and everybody said that you're ruining it well i did in the end but <laughs> what i did is i basically could see what the customers wanted and what they wanted was not what they were given uh, by what what people mm. felt they should have so it's it's not a question of what you feel about anything is right it's purely nice. the customer whatever that customer wants you give them whether you like it whether you don't like it and that's why Ryanair is the most phenomenal success of all time that's why Primark is so fantastically successful and that's why John Lewis are now no longer successful because they were fantastically good value, fantastic service. And now that's run by accountants and all those things have been taken away. All the thing for a business, you have to continually feed it. You have to throw money at it. You have to continually invest in it. It's like your children. You have to look after it. And you, if you start taking things out of it, cutting, that's not what works. You have to give the customer more mm. and more and more. Just when you think you've given them enough, you give them, you've given them more. But what John Lewis are doing is doing that in reverse. They used to do it by giving them such a fantastic service, such fantastic prices, never knowingly undersold. The greatest slogan of all time, ditched. Um, yeah. it's, 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 it's not rocket science, but, you know, you have to invest. You look at British home stores and you look at Debenhams, both went bust because they were deprived of investment of cash because somebody was mm. taking money out of it rather than putting it in. Yeah, and I, and so I, I love that because I love that, firstly, in, you know, when you answer the question of, so how do you identify where to zig rather than zag? I love that for you, it's like the North Star is essentially it's what do customers want? What, what adds value to customers? Because if you do it, if you do it out of anything else, like, oh, I'm just going, you know, I'm just going for the hell of it. I'm just going to change this. Then that won't necessarily win. Whereas if you're doing things differently, um, you know, the classic one being how Blockbuster went, you know, disappeared is basically that what do people, if, what do people hate? Late fees. And yet that was Blockbuster's main source of revenue. And so of course all you needed was some other organization to go, yeah, we're going to do it a different way. And I think using that as that, that guiding light is really, really powerful. That other point that you make around making sure that the business is being fed and capitalized and has got cash in it is so important. And yet 
you know, lots of business owners are in a situation, particularly at the moment with high inflation at the, at the point of talking, you know, we've got high inflation, we've had these costs and so on. There's a lot of businesses that are struggling with cash flow more than they have been previously. And one of the things that um, uh, makes me think about that in relation to you is firstly, when we first met, I remember us talking about uh, the challenges that you'd had with, with Ratner's group. And you said it wasn't just the speech on its own that, that brought Ratner's down. It was already heavily geared. It's got some cash flow challenges and debt and so on. Um, and of course, the way that you approach a lot of business ventures and opportunities, you know, I know that very quickly you're thinking about where's the money going to come from and you're thinking about, you know, going to the bank and so on. I remember in your, in your speech that you gave, you, you know, you joked, it's like, where do I need some money, right? I'm off to the bank. Like that, where, um, what would be your recommendation for businesses when it comes to that cash flow management? When they, when they feel like right now, for example, they might feel like actually we're shorter on cash than we've ever been. What now? Because they might be thinking cut costs, cut back in exactly the ways that you're describing. And yet on the flip side, you'd say, no, you need to be giving more and more. So how, how do we balance that? What would be your advice? Well, you know, everyone's complaining interest rates are very high, 5%. If you can't make 5% in a business, then you might as well give up. So the Americans are much more highly geared than we are and much more successful because of the fact that they borrow a huge amount of money um, because they invest it and they invest it. Everyone's criticising the Glazers who own Manchester United, ridiculously highly geared, but they've made an absolute fortune through borrowing and borrowing. Um, and you're not, I can't think of any other way that to expand a business um, unless you're a public company and you can just issue shares, which is the best of both worlds. But nevertheless, it's the same thing. You're, you're raising money, which you're investing. And unless you're doing that, I mean, Ryanair bought a whole load of planes during the pandemic. I mean, they, they went forward whilst people like British Airways went backwards and Virgin they started cutting because the wrong wrong way of running a business is calling in an accountant who says, well, I can save you this there and I can save you that. I'm sure that British Airways, when they cut their chocolate that they gave you, they used to give you two pieces of chocolate on with your coffee. And then some brilliant accountant says, well, if we cut out the chocolate down from two to one, we'll save £60,000 a year. That was the beginning of the end of British Airways because the next thing was they cut this and they cut that. And have and accountants still believe, that, and politicians as well, that if they cut this, it's all on paper, that they will actually raise that. I mean, actually, I've heard politicians say, well, we'll raise tax from 20 to 25%, which will give us 5% more. It doesn't give you 5% more. By raising your prices, doesn't give you more because demand falls. Actually, if you rever if you cut your prices by five percent, you'll actually get more revenue because you've got st you're, you've got static overheads and that extra turnover comes straight through to the bottom line. So I have a totally different approach from the way a lot of companies are running things at the moment because you cannot project your profit by making decisions on paper because there's other things that come into the equation. It's not as simple as just saying, well, I'll cut, my, cut these costs by 10% and I'm going to save 10%. You don't. It doesn't work. It's not as simple as that. So my view is that you have to borrow 
and you have to invest, you have to raise. And the, one of the reasons Ratners did get 50% of the market and we were successful is because we had more money. We spent more money. We had 5,000 lines. The other jewelers had about 500 lines. We had more staff. We had brighter lights. We had more advertising. We had more marketing. Everything we had more. And we did that because we were raising huge amount of money. And yes, mm. you're right that we did reach a point in the 90s that uh, we had we were too highly geared. And it was one of the reasons that we, we suffered. But interest rates then were 15%. So it was a very different... And even then, with the interest rates 15%, we still got through it. The company didn't go bust. It's still worth £12 billion in 2015. Yeah. So, you know, even after, yeah, not, we would not have built 2,500 shops unless we'd have borrowed money or raised money somehow. And, and an accountants who are doing it the other way around is just simply wrong, in my view, for what it's worth. That's why I'd never... No, I, lo I love that. Yeah. It's, it's why you'd never... What, sorry. Well, it's why I'm not popular with accountants, because I keep saying that, I, you know, keep my wife. And they shouldn't be running businesses. Yeah. Okay. People well, a, I mean, for, for me, yeah, should be jewelers who worked in the shop. Or restaurant. Yeah, because then they'd understand what customers actually want exactly. and so on. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, that's powerful. I think, um, you know, one of the things as well that, uh, you know, since, um, you know, since, <laughs> since Ratners, you have then subsequently built two multi million pound businesses. Um, uh, possibly more, uh, <laughs> feel free to correct me. Um, like what did you, um, what was it that you applied in those? Was it essentially the same, uh, sort of approach of, you know, zig when everyone else is zagging, focus on the, uh, what the customer actually wants and take on debt to, to fund anything else that you think has particularly made you able to, uh, achieve amazing things despite significant, friction to do so because that's one of the important things i want people to take away from this episode is that you've done some amazing things and we can you know i i put it down to the level of thinking and your experience and all these such things but actually for people out there like most of them don't have a problem with their name right <laughs> you don't fundamentally have got a problem where as you say like you used to be unemployable fortunately now people will employ you to speak at their events and so on but building businesses and going to bank managers and so on is problematic when they know your name and not necessarily for a great reason so i think it's important that people pick that up and see that, okay, but you can achieve amazing things anyway. Are there any other insights or tips that you would give for, for business leaders on like what they should be doing if they want to build multi seven figure businesses? Well, obviously they can't make a speech at the Albert Hall and be known as doing a Ratna. And uh, I use that to my advantage, even though you say it's a problem. Uh, I wouldn't have got as many members in my health club, um, because one, the most important thing about opening up a health club is just to let people know that you've got a club there, that you that you exist. There's so many people that open up a business, people don't even know they're, they're there. They've opened up a restaurant, they don't even know about it. Uh, it's important in a health club that everyone in Henley knew that the club was open, and they did because there was a whole Trouble at the Top program about it on BBC Two for an hour, and uh, I got a lot of publicity. 
Um, so I turned that disadvantage into advantage as I did on my online business, uh, where I announced I was going back into the jewelry business, got a load of publicity. It was on news at 10. I mean, not many people would start a business and be announced on news at 10. So I tried to make, turn the thing into my advantage. But what I would say is that uh, we did go online at a very unfashionable time. It was just after the, the bubble burst, uh, 2001 dot-com bubble everybody says you know pulled away from the shares in those companies so we went in at we always like to do things uh, unfashionable times i wouldn't be opening up a online business today because the cost of marketing to buy words on pay-per-click uh your marketing cost could be 25 percent if you're not amazon and well known already but if you're trying to get people and you're unknown to your website your marketing cost is 25 when i started off my marketing costs were 3% because there was nobody buying uh, words like eternity ring or diamond bracelet or gold watch or anything because there was hardly anybody selling um, jewellery online. So we yeah. could get the product to the customer with very little way of overhead. So that isn't the case anymore. Um, so it's not the pan online retailing is not the panacea that people think it is because of the fact, and everybody says, you know, it's unfair that there's the costs online are far less than they are in the high street. That's not actually the case. The, it is for Amazon and eBay and people like that, and, and people have got a name. But actually, the costs online are now the same as they are in the high street. So, you know, the fun's gone out of it. Yeah, because you haven't got the automatic footfall that you get when you're on the high street. Instead, you have to spend or work so hard uh, to uh, to get the eyeballs. You have uh, to pay for it. Uh, that's really interesting. It. And in the end, we were paying £250 to, to sell an eternity ring that we were making 200 quid profit on. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. I mean, you, you've had a significant influence on the high street and retail landscape. Um, you've seen consumer behavior evolve over time. Like, what, where are you seeing it going at the moment? Where, 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 are, where should businesses be adapting uh, to keep up with these changes? And you mentioned one being, you know, potentially um, that online uh, has its own set of costs now and that perhaps that hints at buying into high street when at the moment there's lots of void premises and, and so on. So, but what will be your thoughts on what's going on with consumer well, behavior? Everybody's saying, you know, that the, the littles of this world are taking business from the, the waitresses, the, the cheaper ones and Primark and all that sort of stuff and low price sports direct. That's always been the case. This has got nothing to do with the cost yeah. of living crisis that we're having. If you offer value in this country, if you're a Primark or you're a Ryanair or you're a Sports Direct, you offer really good prices you look and a decent product, you're always going to do well. That is the British market. Now, the American market is totally different. but And, and the Dutch market is, is a completely different again because we went out there and people were very, very careful. They don't throw money around in Holland like they do in the UK. They don't, in fact, buy any Christmas presents. So... Um, Offering value for money, uh, low prices and shouting about it, it's always been a good policy in the UK. Um, unless, of course, you're Cartier or Burberry or something like that. That's the exception. But forget that because that's just a very limited market. But if you're a mass um, market retailer, you have to offer fantastic uh, 
value uh, or perceived fantastic value. Uh, you have to, um, but you know, the product has to be good product that people want, uh, but it has to be at a low price and you'll do well. And it's got nothing whatsoever to do with the current uh, situation. That's always been the case. You know, this thing about mm. people spend too much time thinking about booms and busts and recessions and stuff like that. Yeah. It really doesn't apply to what, you know, the thing that, that matters is what you do, how you operate your business, not what the government does. That you can do, the, the good restaurants are still packed and the bad restaurants are still empty, to give an example. Yeah, yeah I love that. And I think it's on, uh, am I right in thinking, yeah, am, am I th right in thinking a lot on your um uh, Gerald and Friends website that I think one of the first lines is uh, choosing not to participate in the recession or something along those lines. Yeah, we don't, we, we don't want to participate in the recession. But I came up with that slogan when everybody said from the Bank of England downwards that we were heading for a recession. Now, mm. and if the Bank of England, if the governor of the Bank of England doesn't know and the Prime Minister said, yeah. and the Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, said we were definitely heading for the recession. They bet if the Chancellor and the Governor of the Bank of England get it wrong, then, you know, don't listen to conventional wisdom. It's just like the weather forecast. Nobody can predict. And they, well, they yeah. often get it wrong when they get it right. They all said we were going to recession. So I wrote right. that slogan and I put it on. I feel a bit of an idiot now because we're not in a recession. I listened to them, which I should have learned my lesson. But it doesn't matter. <laughs> Follow your own advice, eh? Yeah. <sighs> Fantastic. Well, speak, speaking about following your own advice, etc. Um, uh, I remember when we met, uh, you told me that uh, often after your speeches, you said that, oh, you know, sometimes people don't ask me questions. And I said, oh, I'm pretty sure this group would. Uh, but I said, I offered that I would ask you a question that you chose just in case. And you told me to ask you, do, do you regret what you what you said at the Albert Hall? So I'll ask you that question now. Do you, do you regret what you said? Well, I did give you the example of uh, planting that question and the fellow, poor fellow who did ask it. And I then replied that it was the most stupid question I've ever heard. But he said, you cycle every day. You wouldn't have been able to do that when you're running a public company. You look much happier. You're fitter. Um you haven't got all the pressures. You've got, got enough money uh, to lead a decent lifestyle. Um, so it's not such a stupid question. Um, yes, my business is nothing like the size of my old business, um, mm. which is a £12 billion company. But I do appreciate things much more. And in a way, without wanting to sound too cheesy, you do have to... Um, lose things to um and, and get them back in a, in a smaller way to really in, appreciate them because when i did have all that i didn't really i wasn't sort of jumping up and down thinking oh how happy i am how lucky i am i was still cursing and saying oh god are we going to meet brokers forecasts and this and that and this problem and that problem um so yeah you meet people who have sailed through life without any setbacks and they don't seem to be um that much happier than us who've had setbacks. They lack a certain Love that. Of what a great point. 
Yeah, I love that. What a great point to finish on. Well, thank you so much, Gerald. It's been fantastic talking to you. And uh, uh, yeah, share, thank you so much for sharing your insights and, and your journey. I really, really appreciate it. Uh, I really enjoyed it as well. Thanks very much, Alexis. Good, good. And uh, as mentioned, uh, please do check out GeraldRatner.com, uh, where I believe you can find uh, information about the uh, Gerald's uh, mentoring group, uh, which I know some people are in and indeed I'm looking uh, forward to, to speaking at. Uh, in a few weeks' time, so really looking forward to that. Um, we've been talking uh, a bit about cash management as well. Um, one of the th uh, reasons that we've been doing that is we've been doing this as part of a series on uh, cash flow and making sure that your business survives when you're struggling with cash. One of the things that's useful to have is good processes around your cash to make sure that you're getting payments in and so on. So we highly recommend our guide, the Business Leader's Guide to Improving Cash Flow, which you can find at airmanual.link forward slash cash flow forward slash ebook, which actually includes a, a list of processes and some detail there including some templates you can use to help uh, get your business in good shape when it comes to managing that cash flow day to day. So do check that out. Um, but otherwise, uh, thank you so much uh, for, for listening. I hope you found Gerald's journey of resilience and reinvention uh, truly inspiring. Uh, and if you have enjoyed today's episode, please do share it on social media and tag us in. We'd really appreciate it. We'd love to hear your key takeaways and insights. And remember, if you are going to uh, come at Gerald with some kind of uh, trolling message, just make sure it's accurate. Then he's fine. <laughs> it's fine as long as you do that. Um, but uh, I hope that really uh, Gerald's story reminds us that setbacks can be a catalyst for growth and for transformation. Uh, so uh, I hope you got that value from it. And please do subscribe uh, for more valuable episodes where we explore practical tactics and strategies to achieve incredible results in your business with less stress and being able to do the right things. Uh, but otherwise, Gerald, thank you so much for joining me again. You've been absolutely fantastic. Thank you. Yeah, it's been great. And uh, everyone else, until next time, have fun. <laughs>